2 Samuel, uh, you can read that yourself. 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, if you're physically able to do so, I am going to invite you to stand with me one more time as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. 2 Samuel chapter 16. Hear the word of the Lord that's given to you and I this morning. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled or donkeys saddled and upon them 200 loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred summer fruits and a bottle of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what, what, what mean you by these? And Ziba said, the, the, the asses be for the king's household to ride on and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he abides in Jerusalem. For he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore to me the kingdom of my father. And then said the king to Ziba, Behold, you are all, um, behold, you are all that pertained to Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech you that I, find, that I might find grace in your sight, my lord, O king. And when king David came to Baharim, um, Behold, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed still as he came, and he, he cast or threw stones at David and at all the servants of, David, of, of King David, and all the people and all of the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he, came, when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloody man, and you man of Belial. And the Lord has returned upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into, your, into the hand of Absalom, your son. And behold, you have taken in your mischief, because you are a bloody man. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray, and take off his head. And the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who shall then say, Wherefore have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my own bowels, or my own inside, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite do it? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. And it, took, and it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillsides opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and cast dust, or threw dust up in the air. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. And Absalom and all the people, the, the, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And it came to pass when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, was come to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, God save the king. God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your kindness to your friend? Why, why, would, you, why would you not out with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, Nah. But whom the Lord and, his, and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? And as I served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. 
And then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you that we, what we shall do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines, which he has left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that you are abhorred of your father. Then shall the hands of all that are with you be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Let's pray. Father, our prayer now is that you would help us as we seek to better understand this text. Give us wisdom, give us understanding. Let your name be glorified, we pray now, in Christ's name and for the sake of the gospel, in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, the first half of chapter 15, we have already seen the rebellion of Absalom. We have already seen how he was completely a, a complete narcissist and completely void of any sort of, of integrity whatsoever. Absalom was a, was, a, was, a, was a selfish man. He was, in fact, a cold-blooded killer. Absalom was a patient man as well. So not only was he a, a cold-blooded man, a cold-blooded killer, not only was he a, a narcissist, not only was he void of any sort of integrity, he also was a very patient, cunning, and conniving person, as we've already seen in chapter 15. Finally, Absalom had the opportunity, after, after a few years of seeking to undermine the king's authority, to finally seize power, and that's exactly what he did. He enacted a coup. He enacted a coup, and David and his, and his uh, guards and warriors fled with him, uh, and there was, in fact, uh, no pretense on Absalom's part of wanting to eventually seek his father's life. So David, David, though not ignorant of Absalom's wickedness, again, we saw last week how David over and over and over again, for whatever reason, chose to simply not act in any sort of way. He, in the face of, of, of Amnon and Tamar, the incident there, he did not act in the incident of Absalom murdering Amnon. He did not act in, the, in Absalom running away, fleeing. Uh, there was no action in Absalom's coming back. There was no abs, a, action on David's part to rectify the situations. And so here we have David continuing to not act, continuing to maybe we should say act without acting, completely passive, and it now leads to David running. It leads to David's escape. And yet we know that, not, that David encounters in chapter 15 a few men who are faithful to David. Uh, we, we encountered Ittai, right? We encountered Hushai. We encountered the priests, Zadok, uh, uh, the priests, and uh, along with uh, uh, Zadok and uh, Abiathar who were leading them. Right, David's faithful friend Hushai, who would eventually God would use to deliver David, right, through his counsel. But not everyone along the way was quite as good and helpful and nice as Ittai or Zadok and Abiathar and the priests and even Hushai. David, as we read in this text, um, David actually encounters some very godless people, as we'll see. So, let me ask you a question. Where is God in the midst of this godless story? Uh, he doesn't even get a mention. 
in all of this. Uh, I mean, Absalom does invoke the name of the Lord to say, well, you know, I've got to go back and I've got to go give some sacrifices because I promised when I was in exile that I would do that. But still yet, from David's fall, after David's fall and David's repentance, there has been no mention of the Lord. No one has been seeking God. No one has been worshiping God. No one has been faithful to God. Uh, God is simply uh, relating to us the activities and the, act, uh, the actions of these people as it has gone by. But God, God has been failed to be mentioned. David and all of his people are seeking to work out things and situations in their own strength and in their own power. So where is God in the midst of this godless story? Well, the answer is he is fulfilling the judgment that he promised to bring upon David for David's taking of Bathsheba. God has, again, is doing exactly what he said. Remember back in in, uh, 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan confronts David, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own son. And so David David has promised that the sword is never going to depart. And that's exactly what we see being lived out right now. And I think for us who are Christians, I think this story, and we'll get more into this later, but I think it really does serve for us some important examples, right? Um, Because we are commanded as Christians not to presume, uh, not to presume upon people, but rather assume the best out of particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet I think this story, as we'll see, teaches even us to be wise, to be wise in our assuming the best of others. Let us not be foolish or dumb or even lack wisdom, and even in Christian love, while it demands believing the best about our brothers and sisters in Christ, it certainly doesn't demand that we be naive, and it certainly doesn't demand that we accept every word without any sort of discernment. After all, as we see, that's a recipe for disaster for David. David, knowing full well uh, at least some of the dangers going on, uh, did nothing in in the face of this danger, and yet here we are, Asking ourselves the question, what do we see? And I think in all of that, we see God's good and gracious providence working in all of this. We say, well, I I don't understand what you would mean. Well, let me just put it like this. We see in 2 Samuel 16, God's good and gracious providence working among traitors and enemies and friends. God's good and gracious providence working among traitors and enemies and friends. So to that end, I want to show you God's good and gracious providence here in our text in chapter 16. So let me show you the first, the first thing about God's good and gracious providence. It is, it is evident when, even when we are deceived. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, David encounters the first man on his way um, up the Mount of Olives and, and on the way past the Mount of Olives. And as he's going out of the city, as he's traveling... He encounters the first man who comes seeking, and he seems like a friend. He looks like a friend. He acts like a friend, at least in the beginning. But he is not a friend. He is a liar. He is a treacherous man. He is a narcissist himself. And he is, and here's, I think, the best word to describe Zeba. He is an opportunist. Zeba is an opportunist. And so what does Zeba do? Well, again, he appears to be very generous. I mean, look what he brings to David and his, his battle, or his weary men. And, and, and we're not just talking about men, right? So we're not just talking about um, armed men, right, who are, who are just going out and they're used to war. 
We're talking about women and children and young children and even infants. This was all in David's entourage as they're fleeing the city, right? Servants and, and all sorts of people who are fleeing with David. So this wasn't, this wasn't like even before in the early stages of David escaping Saul, where it was him and his mighty men at first. No, no, this was David and women and children and servants and warriors and all sorts of people who were running. And so in this, Ziba comes and he appears to be generous in verses 1 and 2. Right, because he brings, look what he brings. He brings bread. He brings cakes of raisins, right, these large things of raisins, large supply of raisins and summer fruits and bottles of wine. And he's coming to David and he is saying, oh, my Lord David, I am here to serve you and be your servant. But he's a false friend, as we'll see in just a few minutes, or as we'll see in the next, next few chapters. We'll see that this is, none of this is true. None of this is true. Ziba has only one thing in mind, and that is what he gets ultimately. And we'll later see how David recognizes that Ziba has lied to him, and he restores the, the majority of, of, uh, of Mephibosheth's land to him, again, because he realizes he's been lied to. But at this point, at the point of running, at the point of fleeing, at the point of everything else, you're going to take your help. You can take the help and you're going to take it wherever you can. And that's exactly David's point here. David sees a man being generous, a man who appears to be loyal, right? Because David says, hey, where is Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth has been with me for 20 years now. Mephibosheth is the son of my best friend. He has been blessed by all that I have given him. And he now asks Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant, where is Mephibosheth? To which Ziba says, well, and he tells, he rather tells an outlandish lie. I mean, think about this. He, he tells this outlandish lie. He says, well, Mephibosheth is back in Jerusalem and he figures that Absalom is going to give the kingdom back to Mephibosheth? Like, really? Like, this makes no sense. The story is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a, an absolute ridiculous tale that he's being told. But David, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, he's like, well, okay, I guess he is. I guess that's what he's going to do. And he deceives. He deceives David. He gives a bad report about Mephibosheth. A faithful man. David should know himself. And David knew, should have and did in fact know better because David had been accused many, many, many times of being unloyal to Saul. And yet David proved that over and over again he was faithful. And we'll see Mephibosheth proves that he was faithful. And despite all, everything else, David is deceived here. He receives a bad report about a faithful man, a faithful servant, a faithful friend. But David believes in the heat of the moment and running for his life and fleeing with everyone and everything else. He appears to simply accept this. And I think in this moment, brothers and sisters, let me, let me just offer us a couple of different, I think, hopeful, hopeful and helpful things one, even in the midst of troubles and trials and emergencies, don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. Refuse to be gullible. What I mean by that is Proverbs 18.17. What does Proverbs 18.17 say? The first one, to plead his cause, seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Don't be gullible. 
Matthew 18, 15 tells us, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So just because someone brings and packs a bad tale about somebody, don't go around believing them. Don't go around believing them. Instead, um, look at the character of the one speaking. Don't be gullible. Instead, look at the character of the one speaking. Is the person telling me this faithful and trustworthy? Are they faithful? Are they trustworthy? Have they proven to be a very faithful and trustworthy person in the past? And then look at the character of the other person. If, if you've known, if you've known those, that character, is this person that they're talking about, have they been a faithful person? Have they been a trustworthy person? Now, I'm sure at this moment, David's defense would have been, well, I thought Ahithophel was faithful to me, and now I've heard that Ahithophel is already assembled with the rebellion, and Ahithophel has, has abandoned me, so why not Mephibosheth? And yet, the story doesn't add up, does it? Ahithophel, or I'm sorry, Mephibosheth could not have thought that Absalom was going to restore the kingdom of David to Saul. It's a ridiculous tale. So that leads me to the next one. Think through what you're being told and what the motives are for the person telling you this, right? I think this is very important here, right? If somebody comes to you and tells you the most outlandish, ridiculous story you've ever heard, and you're like, well, my friend is telling me they've got it. They're my friend. They've got to be telling me the truth. No, they don't. No, they don't. What is their motive for doing this? And why would the other person do this? I think these are important questions that we need to ask ourselves. But then there's, there's a second reality here about God's good and gracious providence. And that is that God's good and gracious providence does not stop working when our enemies curse us. Even when our enemies curse, God's good and gracious providence is still at work. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look with me in verses 5 through 8, right, you have the second man that David encounters here. What is the second account? Well, we have the man Shimei. Shimei. Shimei is the son of, or is, is a relative of Saul and Jonathan and of the house of, the house of uh, Saul. He is a Benjaminite. And uh, the, the Lord... The Lord was David's help despite the reality of Shimei um, coming out and cursing David. And by cursing, I, I don't mean necessarily, it doesn't mean necessarily, you know, yelling profanities at him. But listen, listen to what he calls David, okay? He calls him a man of blood. He calls him the son of Belial. Right, so if you have a different translation, your translation may, may read a worthless fellow or a rogue. Right? It's not, a, not wrong, but it doesn't still get to the, still doesn't get to the heart of exactly what Shimei is saying to David. If we were to take what Shimei was saying and put it into our vernacular, this is what it would translate into. He's saying, David... You are a bloodthirsty demon from hell. That is what he is calling David. To call him a son of Belial is to call him a son of the evil one, the son of the accuser, the son of, uh, of, of uh, um, a son of Satan, if you will. And to call him and to call him a bloodthirsty man is to say, or, or a man of blood, is to call him a bloodthirsty man. And so Shimei is saying, David, you are a bloodthirsty demon from hell. 
This was a serious, serious accusation for anyone, for anyone to level against anyone else, much less a man to accuse his own king of. A man who has proven, for the most part, while ruling his people, though his household is a mess, his, his, his people he has loved and his people he has shown mercy to and been gracious to. His people have known him to be a loving man, a good king, a godly king, For the most part, they've known him to be a man after God's own heart who has led the nation of Israel into great and blessed times. And yet we have one Shimei, or Shimei, however you want to pronounce it, uh, coming out and in violation of God's law, Exodus 22:28 says that we that that the Israelites were not to curse their own rulers. They were not to pronounce curses upon them. We're not pronounced to pronounce curses upon them. Again, this isn't profanity. He wasn't profane in his language, but he was profane in the sense of what he was calling David. In other words, he was saying the king that God has chosen for us turned out to be nothing more than a demon from hell who is thirsty for blood. And so not only is he calling the king into question, he is calling God's choice of the king of Israel into question. And ultimately, he is committing blasphemy. He is committing blasphemy. And so Shemai or Shimei, he goes on and he is continuing to not only throw, he's not only throwing dust and he's, throw, he's now throwing rocks at people. And, he, and these aren't just like pebbles, right? He's not picking up a pebble and saying, oh, go away. No, these were, these were like nice big old rocks. And he was chucking these rocks at David and his mighty men. I don't know what he actually thought he was going to achieve by this. I mean, because if you actually think about it, it really is ridiculous. I'm picking up a big rock and I'm throwing it. And here are all of these mighty men with their weapons and their armor strapped on. Like, I'm going to really be able to get at David. But it was more symbolic than anything. And David receives this, though. David receives this to a degree Right, Because in the end, Shimei thought he knew what was going on. Now, Shimei did get it right that God has sent David away into exile. That he got right. But he got the reasoning for why wrong. And so let me, let me, let me say this to us Christians. Don't quickly, don't quickly dismiss the accusations of our enemies sometimes they are right sometimes they are right to see our faults and our affliction our, our faults and our, uh, and our and our problems they are they are right and yet those same people we should be careful with too because they often do mes- misrepresent God and misrepresent his providence so I would say to us, don't be quick to dismiss when someone is critical of us that, well, they're just, they're just a loon. They're ridiculous. They're insane. But at the same time, let me say this, don't be quick to accept every accusation that comes our way either. Because oftentimes, honestly, our enemy's bitterness can interpret how they're viewing providence. I mean, after all, Shimei hated that David had displaced Saul. He holds David responsible for the overthrow of of Saul's house. This is very clear here. He accuses David of being a bloody man, a bloodthirsty man who has already killed Saul. 
And therefore, by implication, David is being accused of lifting his hand against the Lord's anointed, something that David never did. But Shimei is correct that he knew that this was from the Lord. This was from Yahweh. But he incorrectly saw David's afflictions for why he was being treated this way. And truthfully, our enemies like Shimei, or Shimei can, can in fact be consumed with blindness and bitterness and anger and hatred and quick to jump conclusions about why or the way in which God is working. So I would simply say to us, don't be quick to dismiss, but also don't be quick to accept. Rightly, as best as you can, rightly seek, we should rightly seek to say, is this accurate on any level? If not, then we know to reject it. If it is, accept what is acceptable and then let the rest go. And I know that's tough, right? Because it's easy to stand up here and say, you know, when somebody's bad-mouthing you and saying all kinds of bad things about you behind your back and slandering you and saying mean things to you, it's very easy to want to be like what we'll see here in just a moment. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who's like, well, I'll tell you what, let me just go cut his head off, right? Now, we may not physically want to cut their heads off. I hope not. But the point is, is to act and react in anger. But the, where did David look? David, David looked to the Lord to vindicate him. David knew that he was guilty and under God's chastisement, but he knew that Shimei was wrong. He knew he was wrong by the things that he was saying. But David at the same time never yielded to his wrong accusations and certainly did not yield to Abishai's manipulation, right? Because Abishai's like, hey, king, let me go cut his head off. If he's not going to shut up, I promise I can make him shut up. I'll just cut his whole head off, right? And David says to Abishai, no, no. One, this has been ordained by God. Two, God is chastising me as a son because I have sinned. But God's providence is in all of this. Because he says, Absalom, listen, Abishai, if my own son wants to kill me, why would it surprise you? Why would it surprise anyone? That this Benjaminite wants to kill me too. Or says these things about me. And David says the curse of the enemy even depends on the providence of God. Not the curse itself. So here's what I mean when I say that David's eyes were upon the Lord. Not upon his enemies or the ones cursing him. Because at the end of the day, what, what was it that David was doing? At the end of the day, he was saying, look, what, whatever he says that is right is right. And I must accept it. Whatever is wrong is wrong. And ultimately, God's going to hold him accountable. As we'll see, Shimei is, in fact, held accountable. And actually, he dies under the hand of Solomon for his, for his transgressions at a later point. But we see, what we see is God's good and gracious providential hand working. David isn't looking at the curse. David isn't going, oh, my goodness, somebody's cursing me. They're going to, now, now God's going to be against me. No, no, no. He is saying, look. Even, the unjust, even, in, even in the unjust and unjust things being said by Shimei, I'm going to trust the Lord. Because at the end of the day, why would, why, would why would this be David's attitude? David's attitude would be this because he knew what? 
Yes, he knew God's good and faithful providence, but he also knew that Shimei was, was responsible for his sin. He knew that Shimei was responsible for his own sin. And God would repay Shimei for however he chose to repay him. Because David ultimately knew, like we should ultimately know, God is not helpless. In the midst of the curses, in the midst of our enemies slandering us, in the midst of, of, of people, of us encountering fools, we look to Christ. We look to the Lord. We should. We must. We must humble ourselves before the Lord and see the greatness of our God, even in the grace, and, and the greatness of God's grace, even in the midst of God allowing us to be humbled because of our sin. Thirdly, then, I would simply point you to verses 9 through 14, which is God's good and gracious providence in, by, in, in giving us well-meaning friends. Because as I've already said, Abishai meant well. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing sinful or wrong about what Abishai said, at least from the stamp, his standpoint, right? He meant well, right? His whole thing was, look, this guy is cursing the king. He shouldn't be. It's against the law, actually, the law of God to do this. Why wouldn't I want to go and shut him up? And so Shimei, or Abishai, proposes this solution. And, you know, it really is true. You know, we like to say this a lot. The old saying, you know, sticks and stones, right? But that's not true. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. I said it, right? Sticks and stones won't break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that's just not true. Words can hurt and hurt very deeply. Matter of fact, I heard of two kids who were arguing about this very thing. This one little kid said to this other little kid, they were in an argument, and, he, and, and they said, said this exact thing, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. So the other child grabbed the dictionary and threw it at them, right? Because words can hurt you, right? That's a joke, by the way. But, um, it's, but it, it's true, right, that we don't have to have dictionaries thrown at us to know the, the hurtfulness of the words being said to us. And at times, words can hurt and sting far more than a person's blow. Sometimes words can sting far more and last with us a lifetime, far more than if somebody were to simply rear back and punch me in the eye. And these words no doubt hurt David, and Abishai infuriated Abishai and decided that he was going to act. And yet David says, no, no. No, no. Matter of fact, he says, what, what do I have to do with you sons of Zeruiah, right? Joab is, is his brother, and they are, they are his nephews, right? Zeruiah was David's sister, and so these are his nephews. And so not only are they, not only are they friends of David, not only are they warriors on behalf of David and on behalf of Israel, but now they're also family, right? And they're saying, hey, Uncle David, I can go make him be quiet if you want but David says, nope, this is from God. My son wants me dead. This Benjaminite is no different. Leave him alone. Leave this to God. And in verse 13 and 14, he goes on. It continues on to the, to, to, they continue on to their destination the whole while being cursed and yelled at. Can you imagine tw traveling 20 miles with a man while he's up, in the, he's up on top of, of in, and you're down in this valley and he's yelling 20, for 20 miles. He's traveling behind you. Or he's traveling alongside of you, yelling about how no good and how rotten and how dirty and how filthy and disgusting of a person you are, cursing you, throwing things at you, throwing dust up in the air to show disgust, right? 
But at some point, as they arrived, it does tell us that Shimei got tired and he left because they were able they were able to eventually come to the Jordan and there they were able to refresh themselves. Let me show you one more, one more. God's good and gracious providence through, David, through David's friends and despite our enemies. God's good and gracious providence through our friends and despite our enemies. You see, David has left and as, we, as the text tells us, Absalom comes trotting into Jerusalem right after David leaves. And he comes in in a triumphal manner. He comes in in triumph and really is the anti-Messiah in this sense. Absalom serves as a, as a type of an antichrist who comes in, who declares himself to be the great conqueror and the great king, but in fact is a false king and a false messiah. And yet in the midst of all of this, who do we have? God's good and gracious providence has already brought Hushai to David prior to all this. David has said, hey, Hushai, go back, thwart Ahithophel's, excuse me, Ahithophel's uh, council. And that's what we see. Absalom could have easily killed Hushai, but he didn't. Instead, God uses Hushai the archite to protect David. And he becomes for David, or for David, a type of a, a plant, a CIA agent, if you will, right? A spy. He becomes a spy for David, and he's planted in Absalom's inner circle to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. He's a false friend to this usurper. But he says, hey, king, I'm going to serve you like I served your father. And he does. In the midst of this, though, Ahithophel says, hey, here's a great pragmatic counsel for you, David. One, take all the concubines, set up a tent, and spend the night with them, all of them. And you will show that you are abhorred and disgusting in your father's sight. And you are the rightful king and everybody will follow you. And that's what he does. That's exactly what he does. Now in all of this, it ends, it, ends, uh, it opens on a, on a very sad note and it closes on a sad note. There's not a lot here that makes us go yippee. There's not a lot here that made David go hooray. This is a very depressing time and yet... Even in, this David, even in this depressing time for David, and even what can seem for us to be very depressing in hard times, I think there are, there are ways that we need to be reminded that this points us to Christ. It points us to Christ insofar as David, while David was humiliated for his own sins, Jesus, the greater son of David, would come and bear the sins of his beloved, his beloved people as our sinless Savior. We're reminded that though David bowed his head before the curses that he deserved, Jesus bore the curses of men and the curse of God that he did not deserve for the sake of those who believe in him. So David, David received the curses because he, he was rightly cursed. Jesus, the, the Lord, accepted the curses wrongfully, wrongfully so that he would redeem his people. David was told that the Lord has put away your sin, and here we see why. Because it points us forward to Christ, the one who ultimately put away David's sin by his sacrifice upon the cross and would in fact put away the sin of all who would repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we see that it was because of David's sin that he was put into exile, but it was because of our sin Christ was exiled, and it was for our sake that Christ bore that so that he could take away our sin. David the prophet, David was told by Nathan the prophet, you will not die. But the only way that that was possible was to point us forward to the hope of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus the King, who by grace redeemed us from the, from, the, from the guilt of the law and redeemed us and purchased us from our sin. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the hope of both David's plea and our plea for mercy. And it's only through this plea of both David's and ours that we find the amazing grace of Christ Jesus, our Savior. So how do we apply it? How do we apply this? Well, that's that's a good question, isn't it? Well, first of all, brothers and sisters, never underestimate a person's resolve to do evil. Never, listen to what I said, never underestimate the will of someone to do what is evil. We are, in fact, terrible, wicked sinners, after all. Our heart is desperately evil. Never underestimate a person's resolve to do evil. People will, in fact, go out of their way to conceive and execute their evil plan. And truthfully, we see this on a regular basis, don't we? We really do. In our culture, we see this on a regular basis. We see people going out of their way to do what is wicked and evil just for the sake of doing what is wicked and evil. However... As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our resolve must be, by God's power and grace, much greater to serve the Lord. Is it greater than, is, is, is our desire to love and serve the Lord greater than the evil person's desire for their wickedness? It's always easy to hear one person's side of the story before getting the other. But it is a much wiser reality to hear both sides of the story before rushing to judgment. I think David's, as I've already said, David's misrepresent, I'm sorry, David's acceptance of Ziba misrepresenting Mephibosheth will in fact prove to have been a dangerous reality. Second Samuel 19, she, Mephibosheth is in fact exonerated for his faithfulness. Ziba was contemptible. And David was rash. And if we are honest, a lot of times that's true for us. We are quick to answer before we've even heard. Before before believing any and every accusation or rumor or slander or anything else, we must learn to allow God to move past our emotions and for us to be governed by logic and truth. We must give priority. We must give priority when we have received an accusation against a brother or sister, even in Christ, to verify these things. Matthew 18, 15. And I would simply close with this. Brothers and sisters, I know that it is easy for our first response to be to fight fire with fire. Oh yeah, you're going to say that about me. Well, just wait till I get through with you, right? However, we are called to entrust ourselves into God's care. Now, this doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that we should not defend ourselves, right? 
doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we should not we should not offer a defense or protect ourselves. But rather, brothers and sisters, let us never seek vengeance or revenge. There's a very large difference between seeking justice when we have been wrongly harmed and hurt by others and seeking vengeance and revenge. So let us entrust ourselves into the Lord's keeping and in his care that Christ can be exalted and glorified. And for those who may be here this morning who do not know the tender grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, let me implore you to repent and to believe the gospel this morning. Turn to Christ, who is the good shepherd, who is able to save your souls, who is the the good, good shepherd, the good, good Lord, the good, good Savior who loves us and has given his life for us. Trust Christ. For us who are in Christ, let us continue to look to Christ, to preach the gospel to ourselves, and to go and to tell the nations by making disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness and your providence and care of David as he was fleeing from Absalom, his own son. We thank you, Father, that we can entrust and keep ourselves entrust ourselves to your keeping and know that we will be kept faithfully, fervently by your grace and for your glory. So now, Father, help us as we go from this place to live out in the power of your spirit what you have taught us here this morning, being in awe of the grace that has come to us by showing and pointing us even through David's sin and failure to the one who paid for David's sin who paid for our sin and the sin of all who would repent and believe the gospel. So, O God, be glorified, we pray now in Jesus' name.